Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Iraqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Iraqi Voices is a podcast that showcases authentic perspectives and insights about current developments in Iraq. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. With the world's attention gripped by developments in Afghanistan following the U.S. troop withdrawal and the lightning speed takeover of the country by the Taliban, many Iraq observers have been left wondering what all this could mean for Iraq's U.S. troop presence and U.S.-Iraq relations more broadly. In July, an Iraqi delegation headed by the Iraqi foreign minister held the fourth round of strategic dialogue with the United States in Washington, D.C., where it was announced that all combat troops would leave Iraq by the end of the year, while maintaining a small contingent of non-combat military personnel to continue the train-and-equip program. While most of the coverage focused on the numbers and categorizations of American troops, very little is being discussed about what sort of relationship Iraq should seek to have with the United States based on its own interests. Today, I will talk with Iraq analysts Muhammad Al-Wa'ili and Ali Al-Mawlawi about the prevailing nature of the U.S.-Iraq relationship and what Iraq can do to manage it better. Welcome, Muhammad and Ali. Thank you, Hassan, for hosting. Thanks for having me. Ali, if I could start with you, what are your initial thoughts about what the stunning events in Afghanistan could mean for Iraq? Well, it's probably premature to draw any firm conclusions from what we've just witnessed in Afghanistan. Um, But of course, you can't help but wonder how much of what has just unfolded over the past few weeks is relevant to Iraq. Um, And, you know, I think there is some anxiety about what this could all mean for Iraq and how we should expect um, the U.S. to behave in the coming months and years. But this really is a moment of reflection, to pause and step back and really wonder if the monumental failures that happened in Afghanistan are being replicated in Iraq. Uh, and of course, Afghanistan and Iraq are by no means identical scenarios, um, but there is a lot of overlap. Uh, I mean, if we talk about the way in which regime change took place, um, the manner in which the U.S. Um, initially set out its ambitious goals in both countries, um, and so I think as Iraqis, we should be trying to draw lessons from Afghanistan. Uh, and one of the lessons that we can draw is that despite all of the blood that was shed um, over the past 20 years, the U.S. was willing to sit down and negotiate with its sworn enemy, uh, regardless of the consequences for the host government or what that would mean for democratic state building or the prospects of a free society. These issues really were not even second order considerations. Um, they were just an afterthought. And in the end, it really was about U.S. vital interests um, and considerations back home in terms of domestic politics. And that's fine. That's how you would expect countries to behave. But I think it's an important point to recognize because often as Iraqis, we can get carried away with idealistic notions about how the world views our cause and what set of interests drive countries to act in Iraq. Thank you, Ali. Mohammed, moving on to the strategic dialogue, you recently published a piece on the Harvard Kennedy School student publication titled Iraq-U.S. Relations and Iraqi Perspective. How would you describe the current relationship between Iraq and the U.S.? Thank you for the question. I mean, um, needless to say, it's quite complicated to describe the relationship between Iraq and the U.S., but uh, looking at the recent political history of the region, um, Iraq has changed from an ally to an enemy, to occupy to again officially an ally, um, but without that implying, of course, that there is a stable relationship with the U.S. 
However, one dominating theme through which we can look at this relationship and which was also the thesis of the piece for the Harvard Kennedy publication is that the U.S. has always looked at Iraq from an Iran angle. And by looking back at Iraq's history with Iran and Iraq, we see, for instance, that the U.S. supported Iraq against Iran in the Iran-Iraq war. And that war was, of course, uh, destroying both countries and didn't achieve anything. Then again, you have Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait, and then the Iraqi people revolted against the regime. And then the U.S. refused to topple the dictator out of the fear that chaos would ensue and that the Shia in Iraq, the south, would establish a state similar to Iran and disturb the balance of power in the region by building, of course, ties with the Shia minorities in other states. But of course, the result was hundreds of thousands of deaths, among them children, to the harsh embargo that only entrenched the regime and stopped the people. And then recently also you have uh, the U.S. very reluctant to pull out based on Iraq's request to leave, also because the strategic calculations concerning Iran. And one might argue that the Iraqi parliament demands last year were not biting. But, uh, you know, apart from the formalities, um, the U.S. administration's responses were quite hostile. Uh, and the gist was this, that we will leave when we decide, not you. And then the recent meeting with Prime Minister Kalami, by this note, also showed by mistake and photographed by the press um, that uh, it was all about Iran. I'm not saying, of course, this was all that they talked about when the two leaders met, but uh, it's clear that it is um, the dominating theme in the discussion. And uh, yeah, so of course, when a third country is dominating the agenda of the relationship between the first and the second, then it's clear that the first country being Iraq has lower priority to the second, which is the US. And that's actually a, b- a big problem. Thank you, Mohammed. Ali, I know that you have a lot of reservations about the nature of the discourse as it pertains to the U.S.-Iraq relationship. Can you explain what they are? Yeah, so I think the public discourse is extremely artificial um, and it's highly polarized. Um, And it just leaves very little room for a measured conversation about issues that are related to the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Iraq. Um, And so you have these highly charged voices on both ends of the spectrum, either fiercely anti-American Um, that don't want to have anything to do with the U.S., or those that are convinced that Iraq's prosperity is inextricably linked to an alliance with the U.S. And these voices dominate the public conversation um, and leave very little room for a discussion that's based on a clear-eyed assessment of the experience of our relationship over the past 18 years. Uh, And I think this is very problematic um, because the public discourse has a huge bearing on policymaking and it has a huge bearing on how events play out on the ground. And I think that when it's this toxic, it becomes really difficult to make decisions that are really based on a national interest. And I would also add that I think that the tone of the public discourse is often shaped by how leaders um, in both countries speak about U.S.-Iraq relations. Um, When it's completely dominated by spin and PR, then of course the public discourse is going to be full of simplistic generalizations, just devoid of nuance and not grounded in the real world. And when you listen to Iraqi and American officials speak about how they envisage strong, healthy relations, there's this really bizarre pretense that pervades, um, that imagines that the two countries are on equal footing um, within this so-called rules-based order. Um, You know, it's easy to forget that just last year, the US literally threatened Iraq with sanctions if it followed through with Parliament's demand to get US um, troops to leave the country. And if you remember, it was made clear that if it wanted, the U.S. could just stop U.S. dollar exports to Iraq um, from all sales that are held in the Federal Reserve. Um, And I don't think this was an empty threat. I think this was very much within the realm of possibility. 
Um, so what I'm saying is, regardless of what you think about Parliament's decision, um, whichever side you fall on, the point is that we need to be much more aware of the nature of the world that we live in. So what we need is a frank, honest conversation about what kind of relationship is actually viable and what benefits can be accrued for both sides. Mohammed, in your view, how should the relationship between Iraq and the United States be? I mean, I think one way this relationship could or should have looked like is the strategic framework agreement signed by Iraq and the U.S. in 2008. Um, it was a great start. I mean, it laid out the basis for fruitful cooperation, security, culture, technology, um, governance, education, and you name it, right? But of course, the U.S. never followed through. We haven't seen any large-scale scholarship programs to the U.S., for example, or real solutions for the electricity problem in Iraq. And then uh, Iraq needed the U.S. help to stop ISIS from expanding in Iraq territory back in 2014. Uh, but that help came very late. And at that time, Iraq needed U.S. air support and ammunition. However, the U.S. was slow to respond, although the agreement between the U.S. and Iraq stipulated the former should provide support when needed in issues of security. And as a result, of course, we ended up with ISIS taking over a third of Iraq and causing global security crisis that resulted in countless deaths and millions of refugees. Um, also, it wasn't reassuring to see um, that a few years later, the U.S., pulling out from more than one major international agreement, like the JCPOA, which not only impacts Iraq negatively, given that this pushed the region into a crisis, but it also gives Iraqis less hope that the U.S. will abide to any past or future agreement when its interests change. And I have to add that the U.S. did the same with agreements with other countries, like the EU, Canada, and Mexico, which gave even more substance to the war is mentioned before. And then also recently we have got Afghanistan and the way in which the U.S. basically pulled out without uh, um, taking into consideration um, the impact of its action on the country and on the region. Mohammed, is this not what we should expect from a democracy? When leaders change in office, it can result in a change of foreign policy targets. Shouldn't Iraqi leaders be better prepared in handling change of power in the White House every four or eight years? Uh, well, I mean, that's a fair point. And uh, I think Iraqi decision makers should expect change. But, you know, when it comes to international agreements, these changes shouldn't be so drastic at least not in the short term, you know. In general, U.S. foreign policy is more stable than internal politics, but when too many big changes happen in foreign policy over a short period of time, then this is not encouraging. For instance, the JCPOA or even the FSA took years to negotiate, and then what incentive is then left for anyone to choose negotiations over other means of conflict resolution and when there is a big chance that after hard negotiations that takes many years, the agreement is going to be void by the time the next administration takes over. Ali, can you try to sketch out what a viable relationship would look like? I mean, I think we have to start off, um, as I said, with a very clear-eyed assessment of our experience dealing with the U.S. and Iraq over the past 18 years. You know, I think what we have to do is really just to question some of our underlying assumptions uh, about what we should expect from healthy relations with the U.S., so, for example, you know, over a decade ago, I think people kind of arrived at consensus that actually the U.S. doesn't really do nation building for whatever reason. Um, it's just really bad at it and it just doesn't work. And so people just kind of moved on from that and stopped building that assumption into their expectations about what an alliance with the U.S. can do. But beyond that, if we're looking at what just happened in Afghanistan and the collapse of the national army 
I think you have to legitimately also ask, well, does the United States even do train and equip well? Is it able to effectively stand up national armies? I mean, I think the answer to that in Afghanistan is clear. So on what basis do we think that America is going to be able to help us rebuild our own security forces um, so that they can effectively defend the country from ISIS? Um, And so again, we have to step back and say, well, is the existing train and equip program in Iraq working? Um, And if so, what are the metrics for success? Um, How are you measuring improvements in capabilities of Iraq's security forces? Um, And if it's not effective, then why are we bothering with it? Maybe there are secondary interests at play, but what specifically are they? Now, it's not for me to answer this question. I think it's really for our military commanders and also for our civilian leadership to make that determination based on all the facts that they have at hand. But my worry is that these sorts of assessments are not actually being undertaken. We often treat the train and equip program in any sort of international assistance as a form of charity. Um, And for that reason, we don't actually pause and try to evaluate its effectiveness. And of course, rarely is international assistance free. It usually comes with strings attached. Um, It can use up a lot of our own resources. And sometimes there's a political cost involved. And, you know, just listening to Biden and other American officials um, speak about Afghanistan, there were some very revealing indications about what the U.S. thought of their own training equip program in Afghanistan. You heard Biden and others suggest that the reason why the Afghan army collapsed was because they didn't have the will to fight. And, you know, for me, that reminds me of what Ashton Carter said back in 2015 uh, when he was defense secretary, when he accused the Iraqi army of not having the will to fight when Ramadi fell uh, to ISIS back then. Yes, I remember this. And, and aside from the fact that I think that this is really just a form of casual racism, you know, it essentializes Afghans um, or Iraqis as having not enough commitment to sacrifice for their own countries. But beyond that, I think what it also says is that the U.S. isn't willing to have a frank conversation with its counterparts about how effective these train and equip programs are. And this is why it's really incumbent on us as Iraqis to have our own assessment and to make our own determination. And of course, through dialogue with U.S. counterparts, this conversation really needs to be had. And I really wonder when I look at these strategic dialogue meetings, whether those sort of frank conversations are happening. Um, And of course, we don't actually know because there's very little transparency. Um, All we get are these vague official readouts after the meetings. Um, The public is really not informed at all about anything to do with the train and equip program. And I do think, of course, and rightly so, that there needs to be a high degree of discretion and confidentiality whenever it comes to security matters. But at the same time, we really need to elevate the level of public debate on the role of foreign troops in Iraq. Um, Instead of wasting time on silly semantics like whether these troops are combatants or not, let's talk about the pros and cons. Um, What's in it for coalition members? Um, What are we getting out of it? And ultimately, does their presence make Iraq more safe and secure? Thank you, Ali. Um, Mohammed, in going back to your uh, Kennedy School publication, you discuss the assassination of Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, an Iraqi official on Iraqi soil by the United States, and how that clearly conveys an Iran-centric view of Iraq. Is it our responsibility as Iraqis to fix the way Americans view Iraq, or is it their problem to fix? Um, so when it comes to the act of assassination itself, that is of course on the U.S. because it was a U.S. decision, a deliberate act of extrajudicial killing. It violated international law. Uh, it targeted an Iraqi official on Iraqi soil. It put the region on the brink of war, uh, with Iraq being of course its battleground. 
It violated Iraq's sovereignty and invited Iran to violate Iraqi sovereignty by bombing an asset base with missiles. So that's a given, to be honest. And you've probably also read Simona Fulton's recent piece for Politico, in which she rightly points out how the assassination inspired the creation of many resistant groups. I like to describe them as the fourth generation of resistant groups in the region and the first generation were the groups formed in the 80s to face, for instance, Saddam and Israel. The second generation were the groups that faced the U.S. occupation in Iraq. The third generation were the groups which were formed to fight ISIS. And then the fourth generation are the ones who want to avenge the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi. I'm not going to go on to analyze the implication this had on the U.S. here, but, uh, you know, this type of action sends a message like the following to the Iraqis. I will do what I want regardless of your sovereignty, balances, laws, or, and popular demand. And that's not how healthy relationships look like. Um, but when it comes to the situation that Iraq finds itself in, this is always the responsibility of Iraq. And let me elaborate here because I think this is a very sensitive issue. And many people uh, tend to jump to conclusions when they hear this. I'm not talking here about who is right and who is wrong. Rather, I'm saying, how can we prevent it from happening again? And the way we think about Iraq's problems, which are often wicked problems, is very narrow-minded and unproductive. Wicked problems is a term known in policy and leadership and describes issues, usually social issues, that are very complex and there is not one solution to solve them. And we usually use these three modes of thinking. We tend to go into blame mode, either ourselves or the others that we dislike, or we go into an excuse mode. Either we excuse ourselves or the one we support, or we go into defeat mode, in which we say that nothing can be done and nothing will work anyway. But few go actually into action mode thinking, and uh, it requires, of course, developing a realistic understanding about the situation at hand, away from blame excuses or defeatism and towards goals and actions, right? And uh, the reality is this, and nobody is going to fix Iraq for us, Nobody is going to restore our sovereignty for us. We need to enforce our sovereignty and defend it ourselves. We need to handle our problems ourselves. We need to deal with things in a better way. We need to realize that there are things that we can change. And there are things that we can influence, like international communities' view of Iraq. Uh, fixing our image abroad, that can happen with lobbying and other means. But I believe that it will be useless if we don't tackle our deeper issues, things that we have control over. Once we make progress in that arena, we can hope for healthy relationships with the international community. Thank you so much, Mohammed. Um, that's definitely food for thought. Um, what would you say are the main impediments to getting to such a healthy relationship? I think one of the biggest issues that invites foreign intervention and other problems is our dependence in many strategic issues on others. Why can't Iraqis handle their own security? Uh, we have proven that we can if we unite and face great challenges like ISIS? Um, why do we need the US to defend our country and then they just don't arrive when we need them to and then we complain, right? Why can't we deal, for instance, with our energy issues? Why do we need to import gas and electricity from Iran when we are born burning our own gas and neglecting the maintenance of our grid? And then when they stop exporting it to us because you know they have all their own shortages, we complain. Once we are independent on strategic issues, we can become interdependent on many other members of the international community as partners who give and take, who understand their competitive advantage, if we want to use business terms here and uh, use it wisely. Of course, this is not easy. It requires a lot of problem solving and capacity building. But above all, 
uh, I think it requires active thinking. No blames, no excuses, no defeat mode. Just deep understanding and smart actions. Ali, what do you think? Yeah, so I'd reiterate what Mohammed was saying about how we need to really focus on fixing issues that are in our control. You know, we can't really control how countries behave. We just don't have that sort of leverage right now. But what we can do is try to fix our internal problems. Um, and one of them, I think, is about trying to address the polarization in society that you can see being played out in the public domain. Um, and just to try to de-escalate and address our internal divisions. Um, you know, I think it's one of the big takeaways from looking at what happened in Afghanistan. And then secondly, I think we need to acknowledge that this game of balancing and counterbalancing external actors that you see in Iraq just doesn't work. You know, it's like, well, Iran is dominating the country and violating our sovereignty. So in response, we're going to invite the Americans and Gulf countries to come in and violate our sovereignty as well. Um, or, for example, there's this perception that the U.S. is manipulating the protest movement and fueling anti-Iranian sentiments. Um, so in response, we're going to murder a bunch of protesters as a deterrent. I mean, it's crazy. It's this sort of cat and mouse game that really doesn't work. Um, and it hasn't proven to be effective in stabilizing our country. Um, all it does is it antagonizes the other side. It encourages these rival parties to double down and entrench themselves even further. Um, because, of course, when you feel threatened, you don't have the option of fight or flight, um, especially if you're a neighboring country, um, because you can't go anywhere. So all you can do is fight harder. And of course, it's ordinary Iraqis that end up having to pay the biggest price. Um, so I think overall, what I would say is that we really need to take a breather. And especially now that elections are around the corner, um, we really need to challenge our basic assumptions. Um, and we need to recognize that our unity comes from within. We really can't rely on the goodwill of other countries. Uh, and I think once we come to this realization as a society, there's a lot more scope for us to be able to mend a lot of our internal issues. I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me, Ali. And um, as you said, if we st if we take a, a step back and just look at what we want as a country, what we want to achieve, where we want to go, um, it's it's important, as you said, to to have that national dialogue and um, and to think about where we want to go as a nation. For me, one of the things that was really telling is the uh, speech that President Biden gave in the midst of the horrific images we were seeing coming out of uh, Kabul. Um, and, and the key message that I took away on the first uh, televised uh, speech that he gave on the 16th of August, the key takeaway message is that the United States doesn't care about democratizing nations. If they want to do it, they're welcome to do it on their own. And, and that message for me was uh, quite important. And uh, that was the big takeaway for me. And on that note, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Muhammad and Ali. We hope that the people of Iraq can have normal, healthy, and mutually beneficial relations with all states that it currently has relations with. The trauma of past failed relationships are no reason to give up on trying to forge new friendships for Iraq's benefit. That's it for this week's podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Iraqi Voices. Until next time, take care.